Welcome to the Unconventional RD Podcast, where we inspire dietitians to think outside of the traditional employment box and create their own unconventional income streams. We'll talk all things online business to help you start, grow, and scale your own digital empire. Hey there, and welcome back to the podcast. This is our second episode of 2022, and I'm excited today to talk to you about six digital trends to watch for 2022. And this is an episode that I did last year as well. Last year, I shared seven digital marketing trends to watch for 2021, and it was one of the most popular episodes of the year. So I thought I would do something similar again this year and kind of predict where I see things heading for the rest of 2022. But before we dive into the latest tips, it's always fun to go back and see how accurate I was with last year's predictions. So let's review the 2021 trends to watch and kind of talk about whether they ended up being trends or not and kind of what the current status is for all of those things I talked about last year. So the first thing, the first trend I recommended watching in 2021 was transitioning to a cookie-less world. So basically, last year, Google had announced that they would be phasing out third-party cookies by the end of 2021. And Safari and Firefox browsers have already done this. And third-party cookies are basically just like little packets of information saved in your browser that are used for things like ad retargeting and affiliate marketing. So Google Chrome, their browser, was planning on phasing those out by the end of 2021. So that's why I included it uh, as something that we need to be paying attention to in 2021. However, about halfway through the year, they actually announced that they would be delaying this change, so they're not actually getting rid of third-party cookies, until the end of 2023. So we ended up getting two more years to get our stuff together before these cookies go away. So for 2022, I don't think we need to fret too much about this. Most platforms are actively working on solutions that will help things like advertising and affiliate links still work and stay profitable in this new way of the internet working. So definitely pay attention to any announcements that you might be getting from your ad network or affiliate marketing platforms. But since this change isn't happening in Google Chrome until the end of 2023 now, I don't see this being that big of a thing for 2022. It's sort of on pause for now. Uh, But the internet in general is definitely becoming more and more privacy focused, especially with the Apple iOS 15 update that came out in September 2021. Um, That update is very privacy focused and it can actually block email marketers from seeing whether or not their emails were opened. And that can obviously impact people's statistics for their email marketing. It may impact their automated email funnels depending on how they set them up. Like, for example, sometimes it's popular to resend emails to people who didn't open the first one. But now, since we can't trust that the tracking statistics are accurate, you can't really assume that that's a good strategy to go off of. So overall, I would say that this prediction of paying attention to the transition away from third-party cookies, uh, which basically, again, is just packets of information that browsers leave so that marketers can do things like ad retargeting where they're like, oh, you visited this website, so I'm going to serve you this related ad, so you're more likely to click on it. Um, And it also comes into play with affiliate marketing as well, tracking affiliate links and clicks. I would say the, uh, the prediction was accurate at the time, but then things got pushed back, so it's still sort of in limbo. I do expect lots of privacy-related changes, even more so above and beyond cookie-related stuff, uh, over the next few years, definitely heading in the direction of protecting people's privacy online. But as I mentioned in last year's podcast, most companies like ad networks and email marketing platforms are very aware of these changes and pending changes and should be making any necessary updates to follow the new laws and best practices. So you as the marketer don't necessarily need to be the one thinking of solutions here. This is mostly on the platforms that you probably are using to run your business. And last year I said things like, oh, ad revenue may take a temporary hit as we get used to not having cookies. And I said, hey, maybe think about diversifying your revenue streams if you focus a lot on just one channel, such as advertising. Uh, And that ties into the 2021 trend number two that I talked about, the importance of multiple revenue streams. 
So we may not actually see a significant drop in ad revenue by the time these cookie list changes go through, because now the ad networks have so much more time to come up with good solutions. So I'm not super, super worried about that. However, I do still think diversifying your revenue streams is always a good idea. And keep in mind, that yes, I'm here saying, hey, think about diversifying, but if you're still in the beginning stages of starting a business, I recommend primarily focusing on one channel first and growing that income stream to something that's very sustainable and profitable before expanding. Otherwise, I really find that people spread themselves way too thin. They're trying to do everything all at once and they don't really see results in any of the avenues that they're attempting. So don't fall into that trap. But as you start seeing some success, definitely don't just like sit back and rest on your laurels if everything's running through one channel, one monetization stream, etc. That's the moment when you should start thinking, hey, maybe I should get some diversification going on in here. So let's say, for example, you're laser focused on getting to 50,000 monthly visitors so that you can get on the Mediavine ad network and start making some ad revenue. Once you get there, you would be earning you know, thousands of dollars a month in ad revenue, and that would be a good time to maybe consider working on additional monetization streams. Like maybe you start taking affiliate marketing more seriously. Maybe you start intentionally creating things like review posts or tutorials that contain affiliate links, or even tie in some email marketing uh, to promote those specific posts or resources to your audience so they're routinely finding it and clicking on the links and perhaps making a purchase. Or maybe you want to get into selling. You could start creating a digital good like templates or meal plans or an ebook or even something more hands on like a course or a group program or a membership site. And if you're at the stage where you have one consistent revenue stream that's performing well and it's systematized and automated wherever possible, then it may be a good time to consider adding a new revenue stream to your online ecosystem. So overall, yes, this quote-unquote trend was something that was important in 2021, and it continues to be important for 2022 as well. Trend number three that I predicted, SEO expanding into other platforms. So I was predicting or hoping, I guess, that SEO type technology would become more relevant on other platforms outside of just Google search, like searching for keywords on Instagram or podcast search to help make the content on those platforms easier to discover and optimize for. And at the time I made this prediction, it was because Instagram had temporarily disabled hashtags amongst all the election hullabaloo that was happening. And during that time, people were instead searching for keywords on Instagram within their search bar. And that seemed like a super promising idea at the time, but I'm not really sure how much it has taken off. (laughs) Instagram is not my area of expertise, so I haven't really kept up on this, but When I was searching for updates about this topic, most of the articles I could find about keywords and Instagram were from 2020, which suggests that this new way of searching hasn't really had that big of an impact as many people maybe had hoped. (laughs) So hashtags are back now, and at least they have volume statistics attached to them, whereas for the keywords, you don't get any data. So I think many Instagram people are still using hashtags to get some organic reach and maybe not so much focusing on keywords. But who knows if this will change in the future. There's so much potential, but perhaps Meta slash Instagram slash Facebook, maybe they don't want you to have the power to try and gain intentional organic reach on Instagram. Maybe they want to be fully in control of the algorithm. Who knows? But one interesting thing I see when I go to the search section of Instagram is suggested keyword searches. Like up at the top, if you go to the search area right under the search bar, there are some suggested keywords that you can click on. And I don't know if those are customized based on my Instagram activity or just things that are currently trending, but I can click on those and then it brings up a feed of posts on those topics. But from what I can tell, it's pulling posts into those keyword feeds based on the hashtags that they're using in the captions. But there were some posts in the results feed from smaller niched down accounts. So like I clicked on one of the suggested topics, I don't remember what it was, something like hairstyle related maybe. And there were smaller accounts with only like 1500 followers that had their posts at the top of that feed based on the hashtags they were using from posts that they made not yesterday, but like a year and a half ago, like mid 2020. 
So it seems like it could bring some longevity to older posts if you happen to target good hashtags. So in that sense, maybe there's a little bit of similarity in terms of how keywords function and how the hashtags are being used for these search results on trending topics. And in terms of podcasting SEO, that world is still pretty meh too. So despite launching Google Podcast Manager and giving podcasters lots of good data with how their podcasts are being discovered in Google search, I haven't found that they actually display podcasts in the Google search results that often unless it's very clear that someone is specifically looking for a podcast, like they use the word podcast in their keyword phrase. So that's not really that exciting or helpful for reaching new audiences. And just to give you some real life examples, for reference, my podcast, the Unconventional RD podcast that you're listening to right now, was only seen 196 times in Google search over the last year. And only two people clicked on the actual like, search result where you can kind of listen to it right within Google Podcasts. (laughs) That's really, really bad. And the main keyword that people are finding me through is RD Podcast, which is really not that exciting, right? Most people are finding me based on the overall category of my podcast and not really surfacing individual episodes through keywords. And again, this is outside of how my, you know, content that I post as posts on my website is performing. This is specifically through Google showing interactive podcast results in the search results. So they'll show a little like a little carousel of podcast episodes essentially that you can click and listen to. That's what I'm talking about here. And I only got two clicks (laughs) in the whole year. And again, it's just for people searching for RD podcasts basically. So I'm losing a little hope that this is going to change anytime soon, but I look forward to the day that it does in the future and we can search for podcast episodes. Like you're not just looking for a podcast in general to listen to, but to look for a specific episode on a very niche topic from any podcast. It would be wonderful if you could search through things in that fashion like you can with a Google search. I do think it'll happen someday, but it's not there right now. Trend number four was increasing focus on user experience. So I thought that the user experience on your website was going to become more and more important in 2021. And yes, that was true. After a few delays, Google rolled out the new page experience update in June 2021, and it finished wrapping up and fully rolling out in early September. And this Google algorithm update included the new Core Web Vitals metrics that Google has been heavily pushing. And Core Web Vitals are basically three site speed slash user experience metrics that Google now includes in its ranking algorithm. And these three metrics are largest contentful paint, LCP, which basically measures how quickly the largest piece of content above the fold loads. So the above the fold means the content that you see on the page before you scroll at all. The second metric is first input delay, FID, and that measures how quickly your site becomes interactive, and cumulative layout shift, CLS, and that's how much the content on your page moves around as it loads. And Google wants you to pass all of the benchmarks that they've set for those three metrics in order to be considered having a fast site with good user experience. And they have a tool called Google's PageSpeed Insights, or you can even look in your Google Search Console dashboard to see how your website is performing on these metrics and whether or not it's something you need to focus on improving. And this update that took these uh, new ranking factors into account was never expected to cause huge, gigantic fluctuations in ranking. And in fact, it didn't. But it was always meant to be sort of like a tiebreaker ranking factor. So hypothetically, if two websites were nearly identical in terms of addressing search intent, backlinks, on-page SEO optimization, etc., then site speed may end up being a tiebreaker for who ranks higher on page one. But To be honest, there's almost no scenario where two websites are exactly the same. So other factors still have a much bigger impact on ranking than site speed right now. Like there's no world in which site speed trumps how good your content is or your backlinks and things like that. However, it's definitely a case where the status quo is changing, kind of like when HTTPS was introduced back in the day, 
more and more websites are following best practices and making their websites faster and passing these core web vital metrics. So there will probably come a time when if you've never addressed your site speed and your site is just horrendously slow, it will probably start to impact your rankings as you sort of naturally fall behind the curve. But that time may still be a few years away. We'll see. So again, if you're not sure how to evaluate your core web vitals or most importantly, how to improve them, you can add your name to the waitlist for my SEO Made Simple course at seowaitlist.com. I have a whole lesson on site speed, including figuring out how your site is currently performing and how to improve it so that your core web vital scores are always in the optimal range. Trend number five from last year was audio gaining traction in 2021. And yes, audio did gain traction in 2021, but not so much in the realm of audio SEO, like I was talking about earlier with podcast stuff. But podcasting as a whole is definitely still growing in popularity. Now, 56% of all Americans between the ages of 12 and 34 listen to at least one podcast episode per month, and that's up from 49% in 2020. And 80 million Americans listen to podcasts weekly. And that's actually more Americans than have Netflix accounts, which is around 70 million. And the amount of money spent on podcast advertising was actually up 20% in 2021. So that's a good sign for the industry at large. And there are some podcast ad networks, I guess you could say, similar to blogging ad networks. You have to have a decent sized audience in order to apply. So if you have at least, for example, 50,000 monthly downloads per episode, then you can check out the ad network mid-roll to monetize your content. And if you have at least 20,000 monthly downloads, you could check out the ad network Megaphone, which was acquired by Spotify at the end of 2020. And to tie this all back together, I was reading a cool article actually on VentureBeat about podcast advertising and how it's actually maybe a good thing that the podcasting ecosystem isn't based on cookies. So unlike website display advertising, podcast advertising was never set up to run using cookies. So it might not be impacted as much by the upcoming loss of the third-party cookie. So for podcast advertising, it's not really ever been about retargeting a listener with an ad based on their prior behavior, but it's more about knowing who the core audience of the podcast is and then including advertising that aligns with that audience. And according to some data collected from podcast listeners, podcast listeners vastly prefer when ads in a podcast are contextually relevant to the podcast rather than coming out of left field. So it's probably a win for both listeners, podcasters, and advertisers when the advertisements line up with the topic of the podcast. But some podcast platforms like Spotify or Amazon Music They kind of have a leg up here. They might have other opportunities to create targeted advertisements because while they're not using third-party cookies, since everyone listening on platforms like Spotify or Amazon Music has to be logged in and create an account before they can participate, they have first-party cookie data. So they can collect data from you while you're logged in and they understand what you like to listen to and your behavior is just on the platform, not nowhere else on the internet, but just on their platform. So that allows them to have some level of ad targeting within the podcasts hosted on their networks. And Spotify is really leading the way in innovation in the podcasting space. So in last year's prediction episode, I said we'd probably see some innovation in podcasting this year, and we did. So Spotify acquired the hosting slash advertising company Megaphone in late 2020, which opened up the floor for dynamic ad insertion on Spotify podcasts. So basically putting ads into content automatically. And they're now experimenting with something called the Spotify Audience Network, which is like an ad exchange for podcasts. So podcasters who host their podcasts using Anchor or Megaphone, both of which Spotify own, they can have ads dynamically inserted into their podcasts and all of the deals and the payments and everything are brokered and managed by Spotify. So that means advertisers can come and bid on ad placements at certain set time points of a podcast, and then uh, Megaphone will automatically insert the ad into the content from the highest paying bidder. And right now, it says that this technology is closed and in beta on their website, but you can join a wait list. But that's a really exciting development. And in 2021, Spotify made even more acquisitions. They like really are going hard in this space. 
So in June 2021, they acquired a company called Pods that helps listeners discover new shows. Basically, it creates a machine learning fueled audio news feed with 60 second clips from episodes that they think a person might be interested in. So that's potentially one way that people can get their content in front of new eyeballs. They also acquired an Australian podcasting company called Wooshka that allows radio broadcasters to quickly turn their radio audio into podcast episodes. And they acquired some live audio tools from a company called Betty Labs. And that's now known as Spotify Green Room, which is sort of Spotify's answer to the platform called Clubhouse that was also popular last year. In 2021, they also said they're going to be introducing subscription podcasts for people who host their podcasts on Anchor, uh, where you can host a podcast that requires a monthly fee to listen to. And they've also pledged that they aren't going to take any cuts of the profits from creators until 2023. And at that time, they'll only take 5% compared to Apple, who offers subscription podcasts as well. But they take 30% for the first year and then 15% after that. And right now, if you're interested in potentially doing a subscription podcast through Spotify, there's a wait list as well. So a lot of this stuff is pending and up and coming, not like currently active and super up and running. They also announced, Spotify, a a partnership with WordPress to help bloggers turn their blog content into audio, and they're even dabbling in video podcasts on the platform. They're also bringing interactive features to podcasts like Q&A and polls. And earlier this month, they even announced they're making advertisements interactive on Spotify. Basically, they're offering call to action cards within the Spotify app when an ad plays during a podcast. So the listener no longer has to remember a URL or coupon code to go check something out later. The link is right there. And right now they're only doing this for Spotify original and exclusive podcasts, but I hope it expands because I think that's a really, really great idea for both the advertisers, the podcaster, and the listener. And honestly, I haven't really been super focused on implementing a well-thought-out podcasting strategy, but now that I went back and reviewed like how much innovation there's been in this space in 2021, I'm like, okay, I should probably really focus here and make sure that I'm on the cutting edge of a lot of these developments because there is so much opportunity. And so moving forward, I'll let you know what I try and how it works out. Trend number six from 2021 was continue to focus on search intent. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) This one was spot on. And it's actually still one of my recommendations for 2022. Now more than ever, it's critical to evaluate the search results and understand what Google thinks people want when they search for something before you decide to write content about it. Because if you're wrong about the search intent and you don't realize that until after you write a whole post, that's a big oops and potentially a lot of time wasted if what you ended up creating really realistically will never rank. So I'll give some examples about this in a bit when I talk about my tips for 2022. And then the last tip that I, or trend that I pointed out for 2021 was the importance of value-based businesses. And yes, this is definitely still relevant. In fact, I tried to infuse some of this into my own brand in 2021 with the way I set up payment plans for my SEO course. So instead of making the payment plans more expensive, which is a really common tactic in the online course world, it's very common for payment plans in some to be, you know, 20% more expensive than paying up front. I decided to not really mark up the payment plans at all. I think over the six months, it ends up costing my subscribers like $5 more if they do a payment plan rather than paying up front. And the reason I did this was my personal values. And I remember so vividly how it was to be bootstrapping my business on nights and weekends, scraping every penny to make something happen, and how frustrating it was to have to pay more, and in some cases significantly more, for a product just because I didn't have a large sum of cash available up front. And oftentimes, it's the people on the payment plans who really need that money right now in their own pockets. So why was I, as someone who went through this frustration, specifically charging that segment of people more money and essentially sort of penalizing them for not having more cash in the bank and then also making it more difficult for them to get out of that cycle. (laughs) Because if you're always stuck paying like a 20% markup on things because you can't pay in full upfront, how will you ever get ahead, right? So when I actually sat down and thought about it, it didn't sit right with me. So I scrapped that plan. And this was inspired 
I actually saw Alyssa Rumsey in my Facebook group shared a post from Kelly Deals, I think her name is, about this, and that was how it all came about, and I decided to implement it in my business. And yes, I still have people defaulting on their payment plans or signing up for a month and then canceling, which of course is not the intent of a payment plan. It's not a low-cost trial. (laughs) So I am losing some revenue. But I'm committed to trying this out for a full year before crunching the numbers and seeing how it actually impacted my business. If it turns out that I really am losing a significant amount of money with this strategy, I may decide to mark up the payment plan slightly, but only by the amount supported by actual data in my business, not by some arbitrary number that just everyone follows without questioning it. That's a decision I could actually feel good about. So that's just an example in my own business. And I've actually had a couple people specifically reach out and say, thank you for that. So yay, I'm glad it's helping at least a few people out there. But I think many businesses took a pause and evaluated whether their business and their marketing practices actually aligned with their values in 2021, maybe made some pivots there. And I hope that continues in the future. So overall, I think I did pretty decent with my 2021 predictions. So let's dive into the 2022 digital marketing trends that I think everyone should be paying attention to. Trend number one, know your monetization goals. And this is nothing really new or specific, honestly, to 2022, but as I've helped more and more and more people start and grow their blogs and online businesses, which I can't believe at this point over 600 people have enrolled in my courses so far, it's definitely a theme that has come up again and again. So if you don't know where you're trying to go, how will you get there? And in the context of using SEO to grow your audience and to fuel your business, you really need to understand how you want to make money online before you get started, especially with SEO and blogging, because it takes time but it will only take longer if you aren't clear on where you're trying to eventually end up. So where do you want to see your business in five years? How do you want to make money? And one thing that I sort of conceptualized last year to help make this more concrete in people's minds is understanding which sort of monetization model you fall into. And I coined like three different types. So the first one is publisher, the second one is online business, and the third one is services. So for publishers, their main goal is to get a lot of traffic and monetize in very passive ways. They don't really ever want to sell anything to their audience. They just want to create content and have that content be monetized so they can sit back and sort of collect their passive income that comes in every month. And they're very much just, you know, content creators, writers, blogging, posting content, putting ads on it having people click their recommendations through their affiliate links and make purchases, but they're not really interacting one-on-one with people or selling anything or coaching or anything like that. They're not even creating a product like a course. They're just putting out content. So if that's the type of business you want to run, it's something that's very popular in the food blogging space, travel blogging, fashion blogging, really any type of content blogging, including nutrition blogging, what you're really focused on is pumping out as much SEO optimized content as possible because you're playing the traffic game. You need to get to 50,000 monthly sessions, so 50,000 people coming to your website every month essentially, so that you can join a premium ad network like Mediavine and start making thousands of dollars per month in ad revenue. So what you need to do is find high volume, low difficulty keywords to create content around and focus on getting that content out consistently for the whole year. If you do that, you'll be amazed at how much progress you can make in a year. So your challenge is going to be not getting distracted and staying consistent. So don't start drifting off and stop posting blog posts and start creating some reels or TikTok content or YouTube videos because you're bored or you're not really sure if the blogging thing is working. SEO takes time, like at least six months of consistency. So stick with it. Be confident that your strategy will pay off if you're following best practices. And if you're not sure what best best practices really are, of course, I'd love to have you in my online course, SEO Made Simple, where I teach you exactly that. I walk you through exactly what you need to do to create content that can get on the first page of the Google search results, which will bring you thousands of people to your site every month, which is what you need in order to earn ad revenue. 
And just a reminder, you can expect to earn anywhere from like $15 per 1,000 monthly visitors on the low end, low end to like $30, $45 or more per 1,000 visitors. So when you first get into the Mediavine ad network, a conservative estimate is that you'll bring in around $1,000 per month right out of the gate just from displaying ads on your site. People don't even need to click on them. You get paid just for displaying them. Then, as Mediavine learns your site, and especially if you're running ads in the fourth quarter of the year when ad spend is really high, you could be earning more like $2,000 a month per more for that same amount of traffic. And of course, it only goes up from there as you get more content out there, optimize more posts for SEO, optimize the ad placements on your site, etc. So go to seowaitlist.com to get notified when my course opens for enrollment again. If you add yourself to the waitlist, I have it set up on a rolling enrollment through my email list. So uh, once you're on the waitlist, you'll get a few emails from me. And maybe about two weeks after you put yourself on the waitlist, you'll get invited to watch my free masterclass on SEO, where I explain basically everything you need to know about SEO as a food and wellness and nutrition blogger. And then I'll also give you all the details on my course and give you an exclusive opportunity to join right then. And there's no publicly available uh, place to join the course outside of joining the waitlist and getting invited via email. So if you are interested, please check it out at seowaitlist.com. And back to the different business models. If you're not going the publisher route, most likely you're going the online businesses or services model. And your goals are different for those models than what people are going for with the publisher model. So your strategy needs to be different too. If you're selling something, whether that be an online course, a membership site, a group program, or services like one-on-one work with people, you're not just trying to get lots and lots of people to your site. You have like the opposite goal from the people who are just going for ad revenue. When you're selling something, you need the right people coming to your website because you're trying to get your website visitors to eventually turn into buyers, right? So you need to be attracting potential buyers, not just anyone and everyone potentially around the world. So how does that happen? Well, you need to create content that addresses the unique questions that your ideal buyer has. And when they Google those questions, if you do it right and you create content around those topics, you and your website will be what shows up on the first page of the Google search results. And eventually with time, you'll create a lot of content addressing their needs and you'll come up again and again and again in those search results, which will increase your brand awareness and trust in your niche and maybe get someone interested in joining your email list for one of your freebies and they may eventually buy from you. So in this scenario, you're not so much looking for the highest volume keywords in your difficulty range, but for the keywords that your ideal buyer would be looking for, even if they're lower volume. So if you have a course on, say, nutrition and PCOS, you probably don't want to be publishing a bunch of random recipes on your site if your goal is for your content to bring you quality leads. Because who is looking for recipes on the internet? everyone, right? So the percentage of your traffic coming to your site is not going to line up very well with your target audience. So there's no guarantee if you're just posting random recipes that the person looking for that recipe has anything to do with PCOS or has any interest in PCOS, right? So instead, what you should really be doing is spending your time writing blog posts that address very specific PCOS-related topics. Then you know that the person searching for that information likely has PCOS or knows someone with PCOS, and those people are a billion times more likely to eventually be interested in buying the PCOS course that you offer, for example. So that's what I mean about understanding your ultimate long-term goals. If you want to sell a course, but you're not creating targeted content, then you may not be happy with where you end up one or two years from now, even if you put a lot of time and effort into your content. And likewise, if you want to earn ad revenue, but you're only creating content around super niche, low volume keywords and skipping over some of the higher volume topics that are still within your difficulty range, you also might not be as happy with your results. So it's critical to understand the why behind your content creation and how that plays into your long-term goals. And again, if you want to learn more about how to do this, add your name to the waitlist for my course at seowaitlist.com. Trend number two always check search intent when blogging. So I said I would talk about this again for the 2022 predictions, and here we are. 
If you are not manually evaluating the search results before writing a blog post in 2022, you are likely not optimizing your content to the fullest extent because search intent continues to be hugely important for getting your content ranked in Google. It's not enough to just find a high volume, low difficulty keyword on an SEO tool like KeySearch or SEMrush or Ahrefs and then put that keyword in your title and write whatever you think people should know about it. No, you need to do some manual analysis of the search results first with a special attention put on search intent. So what is search intent? Well, it's basically what Google thinks a searcher wants when they look up something. And once you understand what the search intent is, then you can craft your content to meet that need. So how do you understand what the search intent is? Well, you evaluate the search results. So what's already ranking on the first page in Google? And what are you looking for when you're looking at the SERPs? SERP stands for search engine result pages. Uh, that's just, so when I say that, I just mean the first page of the Google search results, SERPs. There's three main things to pay attention to. Number one, what type of search is it? Because there's different types of searches, people looking for different things. And does that type of search match what your goals are as a content creator? Number two, what are people actually writing about with the content that's already ranking on page one? Because that's a clue that what Google thinks people want. And number three, how is the top ranking content formatted? AKA, what do you need to do to be competitive? So let's talk about the first one. What type of search is it? And does this match your goals? So there's really like four main types of searches performed in Google. There's informational searches, shopping searches, branded searches, and local searches. Um, and possibly there's a fifth one, like news-related searches, um, that is kind of bubbling up in the online space right now. And these are just like the names that I gave it. Other people use different labels, but this is what is easiest for me to remember. But same idea regardless of what labels you give it. So informational searches are people looking for information. So they're looking up questions, recipes, comparison posts, reviews, etc. So if you search for a keyword, which is just something, you, whatever you're typing into Google, that's your keyword. And if you see mostly blog posts on the first page, then it's probably informational search intent. And if you're a blogger, aka a content creator, that's a good thing. Because if other people's blog content are filling up the top 10 spots on the first page, you know, if, it, if it's an opportune keyword, <laughs> potentially you could slide in and take one of those spots, right? Um, so the goal in this scenario is to create content that answers people's questions and essentially creates a database of helpful information on your website. And it's a great way to attract your ideal reader or customer to your site. So when people search for their questions or topics in your niche that they're interested in, you will be what shows up. So informational type searches are usually a great fit for bloggers and what most people are looking to try to create. So if it's just blog posts and the search results, you're probably good to go. The second type of intent is shopping, and that's when people want to buy something. So if you Google a keyword and you see a bunch of shopping ads, places to buy a product on the first page of the search results, or you know stores to buy online, Google is thinking that this is a shopping intent keyword. So they're thinking the person Googling this phrase wants to buy something. They're not really looking for information. They want to buy. So if you're a blogger or a private practice dietitian and you aren't selling that product, you probably don't want to write about that keyword because if the whole or most of the first page is taken up by shopping results, your chances of getting a piece of content on that page are extremely slim. Because if the search intent is shopping and you're not selling, you're not meeting that intent of the searcher. Maybe sometimes it's mostly search and there's like one or two informational type pages on page one, but chances are those spots are going to like really high authority sites, not small bloggers. So pay attention there. And if it's a shopping intent and that's not what you offer, you probably don't want to write about that topic. The third search intent is a branded search intent. So people looking for a specific business or brand. And if you see a company's website and social profiles at the top of the search results, then that's most likely what someone was looking for when they searched that keyword, or at least what Google thinks most people are searching for. So I'll use the example that I, I use in my SEO course. Maybe you found the keyword using a keyword research tool like KeySearch is the most commonly used one. 
maybe you found the keyword perfect keto and your first thought, maybe it's high volume, low difficulty. And your first thought is, oh, great. Like I will write an article about how to follow the keto diet perfectly. Wonderful. If you assumed that and you went and wrote this whole article titled like perfect keto, like da 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 and then you posted it and you're like, cool, I hope I get on page one, but you never took the time to evaluate the search results to see what's already ranking, you're making a huge mistake. Because if you actually Google that keyword, perfect keto, you'll see that it's the name of a brand. And page one consists almost entirely of this brand's website, places to buy their product, their social media profiles, and there's one spot for a product review at the very end of page one. So if you had created that whole blog post called Perfect Keto, How to Follow the Keto Diet Perfectly or whatever, you would never rank for that because that's not what Google thinks people are looking for when they Google that keyword. So that would be a waste of your time. But unfortunately, Many people don't double check the search results for the keyword before they write, so don't fall into that trap. And then the fourth search intent is local. So people looking for something near them. So for example, if you Googled dietitian San Francisco, and the key to understanding that it's a a local search result is when you see a map in the search results. If Google is showing you a map, they think this is a local search. And so what exactly shows up on page one will vary depending on where the searcher is located. So for example, if you typed in dietitian near me, for example, or something like that, it's not going to bring up dietitians all over the US. It's going to bring up a map of dietitians literally near you at the time. So unless you are a local business, then that's also probably not a great keyword to target. And then the news one that I mentioned as a potential fifth intent would be if you see the Google news sort of top stories carousel at the top of the search results, and it's all like current events and news related to a topic. Unless you run a news site, you might have some difficulty ranking at the top of page one for that search intent as well. So you really most likely want to focus on the the informational type keywords if you're a blogger. Then after you have checked the intent, the next thing you need to do is actually click on the individual search results and see what people are writing about. Is that in alignment with the angle you were planning on taking? Are they including anything you weren't even thinking of covering? Because remember, your goal is to create the best piece of content on the internet for this topic. So you don't want to go in blind when you're creating, right? You want to make sure you know what's currently ranking so you know how to be competitive. See what's out there and then do better. But note that better doesn't mean take a totally different angle than what's already there. The content on page one is there for a reason, if the keyword is even slightly competitive. So you still want to be in alignment with what Google thinks people want when they're Googling something. And then the third factor is how is the content on page one laid out and formatted? And what do you need to do to be competitive and still stay in alignment with what Google wants to rank? So for example, if the top few results for a given search query are listicles, aka list articles, which is really common for things like best dairy-free snacks or things like that, then you most likely also need to create an epic listicle post to rank. A wordy diatribe on your top three dairy-free snacks with detailed explanations of each one is not what Google thinks people want. So pay attention to that and also pay attention to schema. And if you're not sure what schema is, check out my SEO course to learn all about that at seowaitlist.com. If you're a food blogger, for example, you'll notice that pretty much everyone who ranks at all (laughs) is using recipe schema. And you get recipe schema by using a recipe card plugin on your website. My preferred one is WP Recipe Maker or WordPress Recipe Maker. And schema is basically just behind the scenes code that gets added to the page on your site or your post um, that search engines can see, but regular people who visit your site do not see. And it essentially gives Google more information about the type of content on your site so that they know it's a recipe. And if you're not implementing recipe schema in 2022, your recipes are basically going to get seen by nobody. And there's lots of different types of schema. I would say recipe schema is the most common one that people in our niche use, but there's also how-to schema for tutorials, frequently asked questions schema, etc. And you most often, again, add schema through plugins like WP Recipe Maker. There's other ones out there too. You can also add certain types of schema through your SEO plugins like Yoast or Rank Math, etc. 
And using schema is what makes your search results look better. It gives them extra features. So you might see things like recipe ratings or a picture next to the search result or a drop down menu with frequently asked questions right there in the search results or previews of steps of a tutorial, depending on what type of schema you're using. And since it makes the search result look a little fancier, it has the potential to drive more clicks and perhaps boost your rankings. And of course, some of this depends on your niche, but if everyone else on page one is currently using schema, then you probably need to be doing that too to be competitive. And conversely, if no one in your niche is really using schema or only the person at the very top, maybe the person who nabbed the featured snippet is using it, hey, maybe there's some great opportunity there for you to stand out by having good on-page SEO. So to check out what schema people are using, you can plug any URL into Google's schema markup testing tool. Just Google that schema markup testing tool and you should find it. The rich results test there will show you the type of schema that people are using on a page and whether or not it's fully complete. And then if you want to learn more about schema and how to implement this on your site, of course, again, check out my course, SEO Made Simple, to become a schema pro. That's at seowaitlist.com. But anyway, the moral of the story, finding a high volume, low difficulty keyword is step one of creating an SEO optimized piece of content. But you absolutely should be Googling your ideas and manually evaluating the search results to make sure the intent matches what you were thinking of writing about, to see what other people are covering, and to gain insights on what type of content Google is ranking currently at the top of page one. Trend number three for 2022, niche, niche, niche. If you are in a competitive space, which I would say nutrition and food are competitive spaces, it will help you to niche down, especially if you're just getting started. In today's day and age, Google doesn't really love to see websites that try and be experts on everything. So if you're thinking of starting a quote unquote lifestyle blog in 2022 that covers like food, travel, and fitness, for example, I would strongly advise against that. That's way too broad and each of those categories alone are highly competitive. So you're just diluting your authority by trying to cover everything. Instead, pick one topic to cover on your site, like just food, just travel, or just fitness. And then don't stop there. You also probably need to niche down even within those topics. For example, start a dairy-free recipe blog, a travel blog focused just on traveling in Spain, or a Pilates blog, for example. By keeping your content tightly focused on one subtopic, you're showing Google that you're an authority in that space. And as of right now, and it hasn't always been this way, but right now, that tightly niched authority may give you a boost in the rankings. For example, if you Google best things to do in Omaha, guess who ranks number one for that query? VisitOmaha.com, a website just about things to do in that city. And they've nabbed that spot, the number one spot, above other websites with much higher domain authority. For example, Visit Omaha has a DA, domain authority, of 55, which is a decent DA, but definitely doable for a regular blogger. And they're beating out super high authority websites like TripAdvisor, who has a DA of 93, or US News Travel with a DA of 92, who are less niched. Similarly, if you Google dairy-free lasagna, guess who shows up in spot number two? Dairyfreeforbaby.com, which is, of course, a blog run by none other, other than our fellow RD blogger and previous guest on this podcast, Chrissy Carroll. And hilariously, I totally just made this example up off the top of my head, and she just happened to be ranking number two for that keyword. But the domain authority of dairyfreeforbaby.com is 29, and it's beating out other websites with higher domain authorities, but that aren't specifically niched down to just dairy-free content. So other sites are below her, even though they have domain authority in the 40s, 50s, 60s, or even 70s. And if you Google another example, anti-inflammatory diet for eczema, the third result is eczemaless.com with a DA of 12 and only one backlink to the page, beating out things like Everyday Health and Healthline, just because they're so niched and they did a good job with their on-page SEO. So even though it can be scary in the beginning to pick a niche, I know you're probably thinking like, oh, I'll get bored or I'll run out of things to write about. I could never write about one thing forever. 
it can really, really make a difference when you're starting out to help your rankings, especially in competitive niches like food and health. And it doesn't mean that you have to stay hyper-niched forever. You use that to your advantage in the beginning to get your rankings, get your backlinks, get your domain authority up, and then expand later once you're established. But it's so much easier to pick up traction when you're just starting out, when you're niched down rather than being too broad. Trend number four for 2022, pay attention to changes in tax laws. And this is actually something I need to reinvestigate since I'm sure new laws have passed in 2021 that I haven't been keeping up on. With everything that was happening in my personal life in 2021, I really wasn't keeping up on the news as much as I usually do. But with so many businesses and jobs moving online over the last two years, e-commerce and especially selling digital goods has become more and more relevant. And currently, not all states in the U.S. tax the sale of digital goods. So digital goods are usually things that are just delivered electronically, like an online course or an ebook. Or if they are selling digital goods, most small businesses maybe aren't meeting the sales thresholds for paying taxes in certain states. The thresholds are pretty high. Like, for example, some states require that you have to do maybe like $100,000 volume of sales specifically in that state to owe taxes, which, you know, not many of us are probably meeting that cutoff. But the tide is probably changing here as more governments want a piece of the online sales pie. And to add to the complexity of this topic, (laughs) there's multiple things you have to consider when investigating whether you owe tax for the sale of digital goods in various states. (laughs) And again, I'm not a lawyer or a CPA or a tax person, so this is my layperson understanding. Do not take this as business advice or anything specific to you. Definitely consult with your own professionals. But my understanding is, first, not all states tax digital goods. And you first even need to understand whether what you're offering is a digital good. (laughs) And each state has its own definition. So you have to look into that. And then once you know whether your item qualifies as a digital product, then you have to see, okay, do they even tax digital goods in XYZ state? Not all states tax digital goods, including California, which is where I'm located. So I'm not so concerned about, oh, do I need to collect taxes for uh, California because they don't tax digital goods and An online course is definitely a digital good in California. But what about all the other states where my buyers are? Maybe I have people buying in Florida or something like, oh, do they tax digital goods? Do I owe tax to the state of Florida? (laughs) Um, So for the states that do tax digital goods, you have to see whether you've quote unquote established nexus in that state. If you have nexus in that state, you might owe taxes there. And there's different types of nexus that may apply to you. And again, this is not a comprehensive overview of this. This is very cursory. But some types of nexus, not all, but some that may apply to you. It's physical nexus, meaning you're physically located in the state. There's economic nexus, meaning you sold a certain volume of goods in that state. Usually a dollar amount, like over $100,000. Or it could be defined by how many transactions you've done in the state, like 200 or more transactions in a year even if you don't have physical presence in that state. And this is like, you have to check out the laws of each state to figure this out. I will link to some resources uh, in the show notes to help with that. There's also click-through nexus, which is relevant if you have affiliates making sales in different states, then you may owe taxes in the states where your affiliates live. (laughs) And then there's also marketplace nexus. So if you run a marketplace like the website rd to rd where dietitians upload digital goods to sell then the marketplace owner is the one who is considered the retailer and they're responsible for sending in the taxes since they're technically taking the transactions and managing all that not the individual sellers on the marketplace so lots and lots of things to consider (laughs) some of my favorite resources for making sure you're in compliance for sales tax are tax jar and avalara Both websites have really good articles about the most current tax laws state by state, and they also offer paid tools that you can use to monitor your sales and collect and submit the proper taxes for you based on whether you meet the requirements. So I will link to those resources in the show notes at theunconventionalrd.com. Just go to the podcast section, find this episode, and the links will be right there. But my main recommendation here is to pay attention to the changes each year as they're coming quickly and you want to make sure that you are paying taxes anywhere that you are required to. Tip number five or trend number five to watch for 2022, 
start dabbling in AI, so artificial intelligence. And this is, again, something I personally need to dive into more. I've only just started playing around with it. But you may have heard me talk about an AI tool called Jarvis on this podcast. They recently rebranded to Jasper, probably because Jarvis is already like a character in Marvel or something. I don't know. It's probably trademarked. And before they were Jarvis, they were called conversion.ai. But now they're Jasper. (laughs) But anyway, using AI tools for writing is only getting more and more advanced and more and more popular. And it can help speed up your writing process and or potentially replace low-end freelance writers who write quick content that doesn't require a lot of expertise. And it's popular for other uses outside of blogging as well, like creating social media copy or emails. So depending on your niche, it could be something to look into to save yourself some time. It's somewhat pricey and starts at $99 per month and goes up if you want to be able to write blog posts. But if you're already outsourcing some content creation or doing it yourself, but it's taking you forever, it could potentially save you some time and or money. So how does Jasper really work? Jasper uses an AI technology called the GPT-3 framework, which can create human-like text. Basically, the technology is trained using billions of examples of natural language so that it can understand sentence structure and do things like summarize text and come up with answers to questions. And the latest version just came out in mid-2020, so they'll probably keep releasing more and more advanced versions as like GPT-4, 5, 6, etc. in the future. But right now we're on GPT-3, and Jasper uses that GPT-3 technology, which has been trained using content crawled on the internet, which makes up 60% of their data set, Reddit, which makes up 22% of the data set, books for 16% of the data set, and then Wikipedia for 3%-ish of the data set. Um, And they use that to automatically generate content that sounds like it's been written like a person. So how good is the tech? Well, according to a stat mentioned on Wikipedia about GPT-3, they did a study with 80 people where they had to guess whether a piece of content, short form piece of content, was written by AI or a human, and they were only correct 52% of the time, aka not really much better than randomly guessing. And I do want to have a caveat here about what Jasper is and what it isn't. So This Jasper AI technology is not something where you just open it up and say, I want to write about XYZ topic, and it spits out a fully optimized, polished, complete blog post. We're still pretty far away from that, although I do imagine it's coming (laughs) in the next few years. But right now, you still have to sort of guide Jasper through the content you want to be created. So let's walk through how you might use it to write a blog post. I played around with this so that I could help explain it to you. So you tell... Jasper what you want to write about and what your target keyword is, and then it will come up with a selection of potential blog post titles to choose from. So let's roll with this example, Ways to Make Money Online. They gave suggested titles, such as 10 Ways to Make Money Online, Best Methods for Earning Extra Cash, 10 Ways to Make Money Online, The Best Strategies for Earning Extra Income, 7 Ways to Make Money Online that you might not have thought of, or 10 ways to make money online, the latest methods, or just ways to make money online, the ultimate guide. And then you pick whichever one you want or you ask it to make more examples and you just pick one. Then it gives you three sample introductory paragraphs to choose from. And I'm just going to read, I'll just read one um, and just to give you an idea of how good this program is. So this is the sample introductory paragraph for a blog post about making money online written by the AI tool Jasper. There are many different ways to make money online. Some methods are more popular than others, but they all have the potential to generate a good income stream for those who are willing to put in the work. In this blog post, we will discuss 10 of the best ways to make money online. We will also provide tips on how you can get started with each method. So whether you want to start your own business or just want some extra cash, read on for some great ideas. Like that's really convincing. Like that sounds like a person wrote it, right? So they give you three samples like that, and you could pick whichever one you would like to use or ask it to make more and pick one of those. Then it opens up the editor, and you just click the Compose button as many times as you want to have Jasper create content for you. So in this example, I picked the title 10 Ways to Make Money Online, and then I just kept clicking Compose, and it wrote out 10 ways with short descriptions under each and a brief conclusion. 
And it's not like the world's best piece of content, like by any means, but it can definitely get you started or help you overcome writer's block, especially. You definitely would want to go in and maybe add bits of expertise that only you have or maybe change the examples that they came up with, whatever it is that you need to do to make it better. But it can definitely speed things up from versus starting completely from scratch. You can even tell the tool what type of tone you want to have with the content. You can say you want it to be witty or serious or sarcastic, or you can even say, oh, I want it to sound like Donald Trump or Oprah or Gary Vaynerchuk, and it will mimic that tone in the content. So for this hypothetical post, it came up with the following 10 ideas without me doing anything. It said, start a blog, sell products online, freelance writing, data entry jobs, online surveys, sell your photos online, social media management, online tutoring, virtual assistant jobs, and data entry jobs. Oh, wait, I already said data entry jobs. (laughs) And so, yeah, those are the 10. So not too shabby of a list, but the detailed explanations are a little bland, you know, kind of fluffy, like someone who wrote it doesn't really have a lot of practical experience on the topic, which obviously is true because AI wrote it. (laughs) But for example, here's what they said about starting a blog to make money online. The AI tool said, blogging is a great way to make money online. You can monetize your blog in many different ways, including through affiliate marketing, advertising, and sponsorships. In order to start making money from your blog, you will need to create content that is both interesting and helpful for your readers. Once you've built up an audience, you can begin monetizing your blog by using any of the methods mentioned above. The first thing to do is find a topic that interests you and write about it regularly. Your readers will appreciate this because they know what kind of posts are coming next. You should also read other blogs in order to get some ideas and learn about the latest trends. So I don't even really agree with that. I would never give that advice. I would obviously point people to SEO from day one. And that's a little bit like that content's a little light on like actual helpful, actionable info, in my opinion. I bet if I went in and told Jasper to elaborate on certain things, it would get more specific. But just the default that they came up with is what I read you. So I would definitely spruce this section up, add links to more in-depth content on my own site, perhaps, that I have on these topics, provide examples, etc. Instead of having Jasper come up with the 10 ideas, you could also come up with your own 10 ideas and then put those into the composer section as uh, subheadings and then just tell Jasper to auto-generate paragraphs within each subsection so instead of having them come up with it and that would probably lead to higher quality content as well and one cool feature that i really enjoy on the platform is if you highlight a sentence that you think is a little bit like confusing or too technical or complex you click a button that says explain it to a fifth grader and it will rewrite that sentence in a much more simple straightforward way which is great i really like that and then just a huge caveat for anyone in the nutrition space or health related topics you definitely need to proofread and fact check your stuff because sometimes it will just spit out information that's just plainly not true. So it's not a replacement for people or expertise. At the very minimum, you would want to have someone reviewing it to make sure it's actually factually correct before posting it on your site. And aside from blog posts, Jasper can create other types of content as well, like emails or email subject lines, blog post outlines, which then you could pass off perhaps to a freelancer, intern, employee, etc. You can write text for advertisements, Google My Business descriptions, which Google My Business is now called Google Business Profile. Amazon product descriptions, Instagram photo captions, YouTube scripts, outlines and titles, responses to reviews, biographies, real estate listing descriptions, press releases, Quora answers, polls, business name ideas, and more. So there's tons of uses and templates. I bet they'll continue to add more. There's even something that they call quote unquote recipes in the Jasper system. This is different from, this is not related to food recipes. It's basically where you write commands that Jasper can follow and create a full piece of content just straight out the gate. Again, it's not going to be perfect, but it would be a good starting point for a lot of people. So you create quote unquote recipes for Jasper to follow. So you would write out commands like write a brief for insert topic, whatever topic. And then you put a command, write blog title ideas. Next command, write an introduction. Next command, write a blog outline. Uh, Next command, write about outline item number one, whatever it is, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then write a blog conclusion on XYZ topic. And you just fill in whatever the topics and outline items are. 
So that way, if you routinely create content that follows the same structure, you can start with these recipes so that Jasper just kind of does the same tasks in the same order for you without you having to really think about it. So it's more like formulas. It doesn't have anything to do with cooking recipes. And in fact, AI would not be a good fit for creating recipe content for obvious reasons, but it could perhaps be used to write the intros for a blog post, a food-related blog post, descriptions of ingredients, things like that. So overall, I like it. I am going to be using, or not going to be, we are using Jasper on our newest blog, nutritionistanswers.com. My partner Amy has been doing a lot of the content creation, but she's definitely been using it to help speed it up as we go. Uh, And my final tip or trend to watch for 2022 is if you are on social media, be flexible in the coming year. I've seen a lot of chatter lately about how various social platforms, especially Pinterest and Instagram, are not what they used to be. And obviously, Facebook already went through this many years prior. Unfortunately, in online business, change is the only thing that's constant. You cannot keep doing the same things that worked five years ago or even one year ago and expect the same results. Things change and they change fast. So for example, at the time I'm recording this, Facebook has experienced for the first time ever a slight loss in the total number of daily active users, and they're projecting slower revenue growth for the first quarter of 2022. And this is perhaps in part due to changes in their ability to do advertising retargeting on their platform. And this led to a 26% drop in stock market prices and a loss of $230 billion in value. That's insane. And in response, Mark Zuckerberg explained that TikTok's a very serious competitor, it's taking away some market share, and to help keep more people on Facebook, they are going to be prioritizing short-form video content on the platform. And this is probably much to the dismay of many old-school Facebook and Instagram users. Most people join these platforms for, you know, like the conversation or the connection with their friends and their photos and not necessarily video all day, every day on every platform, right? Like Snapchat and TikTok were originally where you went for video. But Facebook, or Meta, as they're now called, clearly does not want to be left behind and is sort of chasing the trends here. So what does this mean for the content creator on Facebook and Instagram? Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what you like to create, if you want the best chances of being shown in the algorithm, you really need to be doing reels. And if you don't love video, and that was never really something you intended to be a huge part of your marketing plan, then maybe it's time to look at other strategies that might be a better fit. For example, blogging. (laughs) And if you need a great rundown comparison of the pros and cons of social media versus blogging, check out episode number 67, where I do a really in-depth comparison. But rest assured, there are other marketing channels out there that don't require video, if that's not your jam. Look into things like blogging with an SEO strategy, aka creating written content on your website to attract people via Google searches, email marketing, or even podcasting instead. But what you don't want to do is just bury your head in the sand and pretend that the changes aren't happening. Acknowledge them and then decide what the best approach is for you and your unique business moving forward. So that's it for my six digital marketing trends to watch in 2022. To recap, the trends are number one, know your monetization goals. Number two, always check search intent when blogging. Number three, niche, niche, niche. Number four, pay attention to changes in tax laws. Number five, don't ignore AI. And number six, if you're on social, be flexible. So I hope you have a wonderful 2022. Let me know which trend you're most excited about or if there's another trend that you think I didn't even mention, pop into my Facebook group, the Unconventional RD Community on Facebook. There's over 12,000 people in there right now, all interested in creating an online business in this space. And I'd love to start a discussion on what you're focusing your attention on in 2022. So I will see you there. And otherwise, have a great week. And I have some really good episodes coming up, especially excited about one with the head of marketing from empireflippers.com, where we talk about how to get into kind of selling and buying websites, basically. 
Uh, so you can make a really great profit from a site that you created and maybe don't want to run anymore, but are interested in selling to someone else. Or you can buy sites to increase your portfolio and maybe do a few tweaks and earn a lot of money from them. So that's a really fun discussion coming up. So stay tuned in a couple weeks for that episode. Otherwise, have a great day.